It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. For the people in our military, it's a time of sacrifice and duty. That's why all four military aid societies have joined together to form the Armed Forces Relief Trust to help military families cope with financial and medical emergencies at home. With so many serving overseas, the need is greater than ever. You can learn more and donate at www.afrtrust.org. A message from the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Peter Cousins, author of Shenandoah 1862. In the last couple of weeks, uh, listeners to the show will know I've put some fairly difficult questions to some of our authors. And uh, in last week's show in particular with uh, Noah Andre Trudeau and his book on, the, uh, on Sherman's March, I there was, I had some questions that I thought uh, uh, I thought were, were worth answering about the the theme and uh, thesis, the the underlying idea of the book, and uh, the the conversation sparkled right along as, as I challenged. Uh, when I really like a book, it's much harder to uh, provoke the author, and that's the case this week. Uh, lest there be any doubt, I highly recommend to all listeners that you. Uh, take a look at Shenandoah 1862. It really, uh, I thought, was was uh, uh, just a, a wonderful read. It was very, very well written. It was very uh, has good maps, uh, just a few illustrations here and there to keep things going. Uh, but most of all, it, it has something to say. It's not just a recounting of uh, frequently reported battles. Uh, for one thing, the the Valley Campaign as a whole has not been written about as much as one would think. We did, uh, just two weeks ago, talk with Gary Eckelbarger on this show uh, about three days in the Shenandoah, and last season Scott Patchen talked to us about uh, a few days in 1864 in the Shenandoah. But covering the campaign as a whole, uh, 
Peter, was was the Tanner book the last one to to look at the whole campaign? Yes, yes, it was. If if you discount things like you know the small time life series, uh, it, indeed it was, and uh, that would you know the the, the absence of, of not simply literature on the Valley campaign as a whole, but I have to say, and this is this is my my strong feeling. Uh, balanced literature on the campaign is one of the major factors that drew me to it. Uh, before Tanner's book, the only other book of real significance was by William Allen, who was a member of, as you know, Jackson's staff. So the objectivity of that pretty much speaks for itself. Uh, Tanner's book, Stonewall in the Valley, I think, is a marvelously written book, but it suffers from what I consider to be a, a serious flaw, and that is that it tells the battle only from the Confederate point of view. And that is borne out by looking at the source material. There's uh, not a single Union primary source cited in the in the books, where you get down to regimental company-level activities and, and personal reminiscences of the Confederate side. The, the Union is treated uh, almost the way, um, I don't want to, you know, go too far. It's almost the way Indians are treated, as opposed to the cavalry in a John Ford movie. It's just it's a great story, but to me, you, know, you can't judge the accomplishments of, uh, in this case, of Stonewall Jackson or lack of the same in a vacuum. You have you have to tell both sides of the story to to really appreciate uh, fully what occurred. Well, and I think uh, certainly that's one of the thing that one of the things that makes this book appealing is that it does. Uh, break new ground, uses new sources. Um, uh, again, Gary Eckelberger's book certainly uses sources, he- heavy amount of primary sources from both sides. But look, I, I think I think this is. I, mean, I think Gary's done a you know a great job with, with micro histories and uh, uh, in in a balanced balanced form. I haven't read his newest book yet, but I read his Kernstown book and and uh, found it to be a, a wonderful book and and. Uh, it would be a very, I think, a, at least from my point of view, a very boring conversation to to have the two of us on together. But because I mentioned <laughs> from that book again, I haven't read his latest. latest. Uh, I've also read his biography of, of General Lander, which I highly recommend. But I think he and I are pretty much in agreement on on a lot of the, uh, the conclusions that we drew from from our studies of various aspects of the campaign. Well, I would say that's true. Again, having just read his, his most recent one on the. Uh the Front Royal and, and Winchester battles, uh, the conclusions both of you draw are fairly similar. But you mentioned General Lander, and let, let's actually talk about some historical personalities for a moment. The the, the campaign begins, the Shenandoah Valley, as, as listeners to the show know, obviously, is a critical place, a pathway for the Confederates to invade the North, but not not quite so useful to the, south, to the North as it, it points away from Richmond uh, if you're marching up the valley southward. But when the war begins, there are minimal forces of both sides in the valley, and one of the few leaders on either side who is, is, is eagerly pushing to take the offensive and do something uh, in the valley, or anywhere for that matter, uh, is, is the Union General Frederick Lander. Most people, uh, and I dare say even listeners to this show, don't all uh, leap to recognition at that name. Tell us something about uh, Lander. He was a, a very aggressive soldier. He was uh, extremely well regarded in the pre-war army. General Winfield Scott uh, considered him to be 
among the, the most promising officers in the Union Army at the start of the war. Lander was aggressive, I wouldn't say to a fault, uh, but he he would search out opportunities for offensive action at at every turn. He had did not have a fear of uh, of attacking with you know launching offensive with with a parity of numbers. Was not never did not have a habit of inflating enemy forces or their capabilities, and. Um, let's say believe in taking the war aggressively to to the enemy and uh was extremely impatient with general mcclellan and as a lot of his his uh his personal correspondence and and even some of his official correspondence attests he um so so why is there no monument to general lander why did he not sweep the shenandoah valley and march into richmond what happened well one of the unfortunate things was on one one hand Every effort that he he intended to make uh, in in pushing against Jackson, particularly when Jackson was was so sorely outnumbered in the in the waning months of 1861, and uh, even into early 1862, when he had been reinforced by a portion of the Army of the Northwest under General Loring, was thwarted by one of two things: either by General McClellan, who was averse. To doing anything but holding a strategic defensive posture in that theater, he was loath lo- even to reclaim the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. What yeah, McClellan's tendency to to inflate enemy numbers, and in this case, he didn't want to stir up any hornet's nests anywhere until he felt that um, uh, not only the Army of the Potomac but but uh, the armies across the board were. Ready, to, ready to to launch uh, offensive action with uh, great certainty of success. And uh, secondly, Lander went into his command uh, on death's doorstep. He had been wounded in uh, uh, the the Ball's Bluff campaign. He'd been uh, shot in the in the ankle, and it was a wound that did not fully heal. In fact, he cut short his his uh, his sleeve, left home to assume command. In the um, the federal district that uh, that was lay opposite the Shenandoah Valley, and this wound continued to fester and fester, and uh, in the end, it, it proved his death. Just as he was beginning, uh, as he, he he got to go ahead as part of a general offensive in, in the valley, uh, tentative though it may have been in early March 1862. Just as he was beginning to beginning a, a push. Uh, he, his, for literally his first day out, he was uh, laid low and died a couple of days later uh, as a consequence of this wound. So it was, it was a combination of of, of, of declining health and, uh, and and obstruction from from General McClellan. Then, uh, when Lander now leaves the scene, who becomes the next Union commander overall in the Valley area? Well, of Lander's force in particular, which which became a division um, under Banks in Banks' corps, the the general who succeeded Lander was James Shields, but the the overall commander in the valley was Nathaniel Banks. And Banks, well, his corps was uh, was assigned to the valley. It had a dual mission of of, uh, of the valley and uh, also of protecting. 
approaches to to Washington from that direction. So while uh, General McClellan finally takes the Army of the Potomac or the rest of it down to the peninsula to attack Richmond, uh, all Banks has to do is uh, make sure nobody in the valley, particularly Stonewall Jackson, the, the main Confederate leader there, just doesn't do anything uh, threatening toward Washington. And that, that's sort of his whole job. He doesn't have much more of an assignment than that. That's right. His uh, assignment was, it was a sideshow, and Banks knew it, and, uh, and it's, it's very evident that his men knew it, because uh, throughout the campaign, they, in, in letters home and diary entries, they would chafe at, at, the, at the prospect of their sitting out the war while uh, the victories are won in other theaters. And, and, you know, many expected the war to be to be finished by mid-1862 and never to have fired a shot in anger. But, you know, Banks' his job was essentially to to uh, uh, prevent any, any threat from developing in the valley. And uh, McClellan considered it to be of such relatively little import that he he carved away pieces of, of Banks' command. And until the, until by the time of the Battle of uh, Kernstown, Banks only had one division at his disposal in the valley. And that was Shields' division, which formerly had been General Landers. Now, in 18, so in, in March 1862, that's when, uh, say, the Battle of Kernstown takes place. Jackson attacks Shields' division, and... and that battle is well known for the uh, Jackson's almost foolhardy assault. It, it fails in a tactical sense, but it convinces uh, people in the North that Jackson must have something up his sleeve. There must be something going on here for him to attack, and suddenly the valley becomes more important. But what really struck me about your description of this is that you uh, use a lot of well, you don't use the standard adjectives that, that go with Banks in most accounts. He's a fool. He is uh, unaware of what's happening. He's uh, timid. He's this. He's that. Your version of Banks is not a bad soldier. How did you come to that conclusion? Well, when I when I approach any any, like I really, I really honestly do try to do so objectively. I don't. I try not to go in with any preconceived opinions, particularly about the the persons involved, and. I went into the Valley Campaign uh, neutral in Banks, uh, maybe may colored to an extent by the by the, by the you know, typical uh, characterization of him as a fool and and, uh, and a, a buffoon. Uh, and I, no, I, I found the, the evidence led me to to quite to the contrary. Uh, I'll I'll cite a good example. I think it, that would that uh, make the point. You know, he's considered he's known as, as Commissary Banks. That's a, a nickname that was was applied to him by the troops in Banks' army after his withdrawal from Strasbourg uh, on May 24th, 1862, just after he was on flank at Front Royal and fell back to Winchester. Confederate sources would, would have you uh, believe that there were miles and miles of, of, of burning Union wagons, supply wagons at that the whole road from Strasbourg to Winchester was illuminated by burning wagons, and that banks retreated precipitately to Winchester, uh, fought poorly there, and then stumbled back in precipitate retreat to the uh, Potomac. The evidence doesn't bear that out. To begin with, banks had a very small force at his disposal at the time that Jackson 
and his and Ewell, whose division had been united with Jackson, decided to move down the valley and aggressively aggressively threaten uh, the lower valley and cause 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 a stir in Washington to try to divert troops from McClellan's effort on the peninsula. The banks had at his disposal 4,500 more or less that were sitting at Strasbourg, which was uh, a major Union supply depot. Banks earlier, a couple weeks earlier, had concluded that uh, Jackson posed no threat to the lower valley. But in the days preceding Jackson's movement down the valley and his out, movement outflank banks from Strasbourg, banks got wind of this through through his his intelligence sources, through scouts, spies. He sent uh, he sent a telegram to the Secretary of War Stanton saying, "Look, I can't hold Strasbourg. I only have 4,500 men. Strasbourg can be outflanked easily. Please allow me to fall back to Winchester." Stanton denied him permission. Banks, again, anticipating that uh, his flank might be turned at Front Royal, but still operating within the strictures that, that Stanton set down for him, dispatched his largest regiment, uh, some 900 men under under Colonel Kenley, the first Maryland, to Front Royal to try to uh, forestall any flanking movement in that direction. And, uh, again, he predicted correctly. He, as soon as, as he got credible word that Front Royal had fallen, Banks kept his head, he organized his command very effectively, and withdrew to Winchester on May 24th. Uh, it's not possible from the source material to, to determine what percentage of his wagon train he lost between Strasbourg and Winchester and what portion between Winchester and Potomac, but the total out of a, a total of 550 wagons, he lost fewer than 100, and of, of that number, a good many were inconsequential, you know, two-horse uh, buggies and things of that nature. He preserved the vast majority of his, of his his supply train, which is no mean feat when you're outnumbered, as he was, more than three to one. And uh, against a force that already, and by virtue of its victory at Front Royal, had a a more direct, had a shorter route to Winchester than he did. Once he got to Winchester. That, that night, the night of, uh, of May 24th, Banks knew that if he stood and fought, he would be defeated. He called a council of war and said, and said look, I, I, you know, I know we're, get, we're fighting against uh, greatly superior numbers, but I believe we have to stay and fight at delaying action to allow our trains to continue to the Potomac. And he, he had say, two brigades with him, a very small division, made the decision to stand uh, to allow his trains to withdraw in, in good order. He accomplished that task. He held Jackson at bay for about oh, about five hours. Uh, the fog intervened and then caused a delay in the battle for some of that time. But once once he did fall back from Winchester, he he fell back in in, in relatively good order. Uh, only a small percentage of his force broke and ran, you know, ran uh, through the streets of Winchester in, in anything approaching abject disorder. And perhaps what's Particularly telling to me is that you know troops are never, uh, generally never enamored of a commander after defeat and and a lengthy retreat. 
uh, Manx's troops that co- co- ended up covering nearly 35 miles and falling back from Winchester to the Potomac River that day. But without itself, every letter that I read or diary entry that were penned by soldiers or officers under his command that night or the next day or the day or two after were uniformly praiseworthy of Banks' actions. And he so managed the, the fight general, well. So we can say that, that Banks was, was not the, the Washington generals to... Uh, Stonewall Jackson's Harlem Globetrotters, as he's sometimes portrayed. We're going to take another break and come back in just a moment with our guest, Peter Cousins, on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 